Hello, and welcome to the latest FT Advisor in Focus podcast in partnership with Wisdom Tree, where we will be discussing how Russia's attack on Ukraine has shifted geopolitical power structures and what this might mean for investors. The world order was rattled on February 24th when Russia attacked Ukraine. No longer does the Western world appear open to dealing or trading freely with the aggressor. Three months on, there seems little hope of an end to the war. So is it creating a world of more elevated geopolitical risk, friction between power blocks and contested globalisation? Here with me to discuss this today are William Morris, Head of Investments at Weatherby's Private Bank, and Anika Gupta, Director of Macroeconomic Research at Wisdom Tree. Hello, both. Now, we've, there's, there's a lot going on in the world at the moment, um, geopolitically. Um, so can I start with you, uh, William? Um, is the Ukraine crisis creating a world of more elevated geopolitical risk, rivalry between power blocks and contested globalisation? Well, I think it's very difficult to say. And when you think about these sorts of questions, one always has to couch one's answers in terms of uncertainties and probabilities. Um, otherwise, you know, one comes across as being you know, rather too clever and overconfident. Um, but I, I would tend to get back to the, you know, the, the case for long-term investment really resting on a belief that human will humanity will continue to be restlessly productive and, and that will drive ongoing um, you know, expansion in, in the values of market capitals of, of all the companies around the world. And, and historical returns have done much to evidence that. So when I look at something like what's going on in Ukraine, you have to kind of um, take a step back a bit and, and return to that original case for investing and think, does this actually change things altogether? Um, when it comes to geopolitical effects on investing, I suppose, in one sense, you're thinking about, you know, do I do I try to preempt, uh, you know, these kinds of events? And I think the answer is probably altogether no on that front. Um, if experts that we kind of all hear in, in long form podcasts like likes of Neil Niall Ferguson and so on and so forth are fallible, um, what hope for us mere mortals? But when it comes to reacting, um, responding to these sorts of things, and, and thinking about how they may have an effect on portfolios, well, the direct effects are pretty small. Um, in terms of the actual exposures within our, in our portfolios, you know, Russia only about a quarter percent of global equities. But so the, the indirect, indirect effects that we have to worry about are things like cost push inflation through commodity prices, and that in terms of obviously has spurred further interest rate hikes. The question is, you know, what do we then do about that in a, in a multi asset class portfolio? Probably, it, I would worry more about bonds if, if nothing else. Um, and, and I don't think that it's wise to sort of chuck the baby out with the bathwater in terms of. Um, the tried and tested approach that seems to have worked throughout many decades. I, I don't think it's worth trying to um, trying to second guess too many of the geopolitical um, twists and turns over the coming years, um, because that that may well end up harming us. Okay. Well, how about how about you, Anika? How you how do you feel um, what's going on in the world currently has kind of um, shifted the goal the, the goalposts? Well, it is quite similar to, uh, you know, what William mentioned. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, if you look at uh, Russia's contribution to the global GDP, it's actually quite small. But when you look at the world's reliance, in particular, uh, you know, economies such as Europe, um, India, China, if you look at their reliance on imports of oil and other commodities, that's when you see, um, you know, the ramifications of, the Ukrainian war uh, taking place. Um, you know, we've seen, and these we've seen ever since the war has taken place, commodity prices um, have been led higher. 
and most of that has been ingrained in higher energy prices. Um, and a lot of the commodities that are very dependent on higher energy, so be it you know fertilizers uh, that impact the agricultural commodity space, uh, be it industrial metal production that again rely on power, uh, you know, for smelters to continue production, uh, we've seen their prices being impacted uh, due to the knock-on effects of higher energy prices. And at the same time, if you come back to you know the the real world, uh, consumers are now seeing a direct impact of higher energy prices, um, be it via electricity electricity bills, be it you know via um, higher uh, gas bills, higher uh, fuel bills, and um, you know it is having a direct uh, impact on uh, consumers. And, you know, we've already seen that towards um, mid-April, the IMF came out, um, you know, they've clearly described the economic impact of the Ukrainian war as a, as a very clear and present danger. Um, and, you know, subsequent to that, they've cut the um, global growth outlook. And this is for the second time, you know, in 2022, uh, we've, they're now expecting output to rise 3.6%. Um, uh, in 2022 versus their previous projection of 4.4 in Jan uh, this year. Mm -hmm. and, and what about kind of longer lasting changes? Um, you know, it looked for a while that we could trade with Russia freely, for example. That doesn't seem to be um, the case at all anymore. Um, and then obviously you have China and the US. Um, so we we have a lot of kind of power structures there. Is is there, has have, has, have these things changed? like in the long term? I would be very wary of, of making that kind of conclusion that uh, projecting the recent past into the future is a very, very dangerous thing to do. Um, and it's worth reminding ourselves, I think, that you know, when we look back at the history of longer term investing, that, that context does include all sorts of wars and inflation spikes aplenty. Um, and, and we've come through it relatively unscathed. Um, when I try to sort of make any kind of head or tail of what might happen, um, I, I, I tend to look as much as I can to the people who prognosticate us almost for a living, you know, the so-called super forecasts and this, this sort of thing. And if you look at websites, which are, if you like, um, prediction markets or something close to that, uh, these kind of aggregators of people who, who are particularly skilled at this sort of thing, um, there's a great case in point. If you look at, the, for example, in Metaculus, the, the, one of their particular um, surveys of predictions was focused on will there be Russian troops in Kiev in 2022? That's, that was started back at the start of the year, and the, the forecast of average was around about 10% or something. Then, as soon as the invasion hit, that, that average of, of forecast hit close to 100%. Um, but then over the course of the coming weeks, as things looked you know, not go so swimmingly, um, that, for, that forecast, you know, will Russian troops be in Kiev 2022 by then 22? It's now hovering back at around 28%. So uh, that, none of this is wrong, okay? This is perfectly sensible and logical to update one's forecast in line with new information. You know, if you predict that, you know, the die is going to land on a six, the probability of one six, and it does happen, that doesn't mean that was an incorrect forecast. So I, I'm not pouring scorn on this, this vacillating prediction at all. It makes total sense. However, it just goes to show that within such a short, short space of time, something relatively, you know, straightforward to predict has, has gone through ruptures of being from you know, almost impossible to almost deadly certain to uh, probably not. So I'm extremely wary of um, second guessing what might happen over the coming years or even decades, and certainly not um, upending a portfolio to to try and take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, Anika, do you do you agree with that? Well, uh, you know, from our 
from our perspective, the way we look at the Russian war in Ukraine is, you know, we try to um, follow the geopolitical risk index, um, and that's based on the work of, uh, you know, Kodara and Yakov Vielo. Um, they are, you know, they provide a working paper by the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve Board. Um, and the methodology is quite simple. They're basically counting the occurrence of words related to geopolitical tensions in leading international newspapers and reports. And as far as I know, uh, this is the only geopolitical risk benchmark that gives you a historical perspective dating back to 1899. And, you know, it, we've seen this index spike around two very important world wars. Uh, we've seen it at the beginning of the Korean War uh, in 1950 to 53, and during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. And then after the 9-11 attacks, and now this is another very important time, um, you know, when we've seen the U Ukrainian invasion by Russia take place, um, we've seen this index now stand at a two-decade high, um, you know, close to levels just reached prior to the 9-11 peak. So it gives you an understanding of how, um, you know, what a big impact it is having geopolitically. Um, and what we're seeing is an important regime shift. We're seeing, um, you know, one or two things take place. The first being uh, we're, we're starting to see, you know, decade worth of um, uh, savings by consumers that had taken place, uh, you know, over the past decade is now um, going to be eaten up by a rise in global defense spending. We've already seen Germany, we've seen um, many, many economies uh, now increase uh, their their spending to defense as a percentage of GDP in order to, uh, you know, as as the, the, the need for safety and security has, has become extremely important. The second very important um, impact we're seeing from this uh, <laughs> Ukrainian war is, um, you know, the decline in the rate of globalization. Uh, you know, clearly over the last 10 years, we've seen globalization really garner momentum, and it's actually been favorable for a number of economies. But since the war has taken place, and given Europe's vulnerability to, uh, you know, Russian energy supplies, I think no other country in the world wants to be in that in Europe's shoes right now. And as a consequence, uh, you know, we're going to see a, 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 a decline in the rate of globalization. Um, you know, that could be, you know, as an example, it could be Europe trying to power ahead with its, with its energy transition in order to reduce and uh, wean its um, dependence on Russian energy. And we're also likely to see the U.S. not be as reliant on semiconductor chips supply from Asia. Um, so, you know, these are some of the shifts that we we are observing um, at Wisdom Tree. Right. Okay, that's interesting. So, and are you responding to those shifts at all? Um, I mean, I guess these are kind of more long-term trends. I've spoken to Morningstar recently, who basically told me um, that you should, as an investor, never respond to geopolitical kind of news because there's just no straight line to be drawn. Um, because you can, for example, you can see how the Russian ruble behaves. You know, it's just, um, it's, it, you can tell, it, it's a prime example by how these two don't correlate. Um, or at least there's no straight line. You can't kind of infer a line. Um, now, are you, 
are you is Western to responding to this in any way to to these kind of bigger developments? Well, we have seen clients, uh, you know, see a bit of a shift in the way they're allocating their capital. So I think, you know, we're moving away from the old fang to the new fang. So the old fangs were the well-known, you know, Facebook, Apple, Alphabet, Netflix, and Google. But the new fang is taking a very new dimension, and it's across commodities, it's across, um, you know, different assets, uh, you know, with F standing up for fuels, A for, again, aerospace and defense. Uh, this, the next A, um, you know, is represented by agriculture, um, N for nuclear and renewable energy, and finally G for, you know, that defensive space where you look at gold, metals, and minerals, which, again, will be very important components within the energy transition. Um, so we've definitely seen a shift. We, we've been observing it in, you know, the flows that have been coming in in 2022. Um, there's been a much bigger allocation to agricultural commodities, you know, we, we saw many parts of Europe previously, you know, find that space extremely volatile uh, within the commodity spectrum. But with the kind of gains that have been, um, uh, you know, received this year, you can look at the Bloomberg um, Agriculture Commodity Index up 30 percent, the Bloomberg Energy Commodity Index up 80 percent. You know, it gives you an idea of the kind of returns taking place within the commodity spectrum. And investors are clearly paying a little bit more attention to this. Um, and again, you know, as I as I mentioned, the Russian war in Ukraine is is leading to this paradigm shift where countries that are, are now raising the defense spending um, is having a knock on effect of you know defense stocks which have really outperformed uh, year to date, and this is globally due to heightened geopolitical tensions. Uh, you know, we're now seeing greater military spending, and that is that is taking up another allocation within investors' portfolio, and. You know, like I mentioned at the beginning, uh, given the uh, ge geopolitical risk in the index rising to such, you know, such a high level that was only seen during the 9-11 attacks, uh, gold, again, warrants a very important allocation uh, within the portfolio as an important hedge, uh, not only to rising inflation, but also to, um, you know, rising geopolitical risk. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, what about you, William? Do you agree? I would be a little wary of, of doing that sort of thing because, well, first of all, geopolitical shocks can work both ways and you can end up getting whiplashed. You know, for example, we, we know nothing about whether a potential Iran deal might be announced in the coming weeks. That would certainly be in, in the Biden administration's interest to do so. Um, and that would obviously have a massive depression, a depressive effect on oil prices. So you have to be very, very careful that you don't get sucked into um, playing one particular game and then being you know, completely wished back in another direction. Um, Another rather obvious point to make, but obviously all this stuff is so very quickly priced in, it's almost immediate. It, it really is like light traveling to us from distant galaxies. By the time it reaches us, the stuff has already happened. Um, empires may have fallen. Um, honestly, if you went back in time and, and told people that that episode of The Simpsons where Donald Trump was president will actually come true. And if you told people that, you know, that Zelensky will not be, only become the, you know, the leader of Ukraine, but he, just as he was in his television program, but actually a Churchillian defender. Um, if you told people that Boris Johnson would be the first prime minister to not only be found guilty of breaking the law, but having broken the law he had himself made against having birthday parties, they would look at you as if you had too much of the good stuff. So, you know, I, I, I think rather than responding or, or preempting geopolitical um, 
effect on portfolios. I think possibly the better way to think about it is in terms of communications, because what is undoubtedly true is that it's very different from a common old garden market crash, um, because clients really have to live and breathe this stuff every day. They're very aware of geopolitical news, um, unlike most rather dull, I'm afraid, market data. Um, and that, I think, is a bit of a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, clients tend to lower their expectations a bit. They're very aware that there's a war on. It's going to have an effect, even though that's obviously but a footnote com compared to the you know, human suffering. Uh, they are very, very aware that's going to have an effect on their portfolios. Um, on the other hand, there is, for many clients, no escape from the fire hydrant of news. And so they may need a bit more regular reassurance and communications on that front. So perhaps communications is, is the better way to respond to geopolitic, geopolitical um, tensions rather than doing anything um, to a portfolio itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and what effect does this, this geopolitics and what's going on at the moment, what effect does that have on other big themes, such as, for example, climate change, climate change investments? Um, I suppose we, we should all be you know, solving the climate change dilemma together, whereas now, you know, there's such friction, it's hard to see how, how there can be a, a kind of concerted effort at, you know, slowing global warming. What, is, what effect does that have on these kind of investments? I would um, I tend to be rather circumspect about thinking about these sorts of things in, in the context of one's portfolio. Uh, I think it's more important to vote with one's wallet than try and change the world for the better with one's portfolio. Because uh, you can, and the FT have reported very well on this recently in the past few months, by the way, the, the, the danger of greenwashing and uh, of just simply re repackaging funds overnight, um, it, it can end up being a tremendous distraction to doing actual, uh, affecting actual change in the real world. Um, so I, I'm, I'm rather wary of the, the notion that divesting of a particular company is going to you know, hurt them to such an extent through the cost of capital that it's going to affect massive change. Uh, I don't doubt that they dislike it. Um, however, you know, if you think of the example of an investor who has, for example, divested of Gazprom, but is still paying them to heat their home, I think you know, that clearly that's doing NAF all good. So we need to perhaps be a little bit circumspect of, of the notion of of having a, a, a green portfolio that therefore gives us license to forget about our, our daily lives. I think our daily lives and the actions that we each individually take is, is far more important than relying on our investment portfolios or even political leaders for that matter to, to kind of do it for us. Mm -hmm. And then, Annika, have you, do you think any of this is having any effect on the kind of, you know, ESG mega trend, I suppose, or ESG trends, ESG investment markets? I think we've seen a lot happening within the ESG space. Um, I think the first the first thing that I would want to mention is clearly ever since we saw, you know, this sudden spike in energy prices, um, we saw a number of uh, countries go back, um, especially when we saw natural gas prices rising, which is, uh, you know, which is basically the transition fuel in this race towards, you know, moving away from fossil fuels, we saw a number of countries take a back stand and, um, you know, go further in the opposite direction by renewing coal plants um, in order to try and alleviate uh, using such high natural gas prices um, and energy prices that were trading at an all-time premium. So obviously that uh, resulted in coal prices also surging to an all-time high. And so... Um, 
you know, for a, for a brief period of time, um, we did see carbon uh, permits in Europe actually decline. And many people questioned whether, uh, you know, we were seeing a pause in the energy transition, whether, uh, you know, the EU carbon permit mechanism was not actually progressing as it was originally outlined, uh, you know, whether companies are just focused on ensuring price uh, energy stability as opposed to, um, you know, focusing on lowering their carbon emissions. So I think we did go through brief periods where um, companies were just, and, and countries were scrambling to, you know, bring back that supply of energy as, you know, we saw sanctions being imposed on Russian oil and Russian uh, gas supplies. Um, but since then, I've seen, uh, you know, the, the carbon permit prices coming back up, uh, you know, Europe uh, making and uh, taking a number of initiatives, uh, charting down a plan of how they're going to try to wean themselves off, uh, uh, you know, Russian oil. We've already seen uh, Germany go ahead and, uh, you know, commit to um, uh, commit to not going ahead and and uh, using Russian oil, uh, and obviously that would be within a six month uh, time frame, and that is despite the fact whether EU would be able to resolve the internal conflict, uh, you know, going on within the countries. So I definitely think, given Europe's vulnerability at this point in time, um, they are going to do everything in their might to power ahead with the energy transition. And that is definitely going to come in two forms, uh, you know, being the first being road transportation, which contributes uh, road transportation as well as electricity uh, production, which contributes to nearly three fourths of um, the harmful emissions that are, you know, released in the globe. Um, so those are the two key uh, uh, routes that they're going to that they're going to try to address in terms of reducing carbon emissions. And obviously, for road transportation, it will involve the build-out of electric vehicles and the infrastructure to support that. And as far as electricity production is concerned, it will really be focused on energy storage, uh, you know, the build-out of the infrastructure uh, in order to um, wean itself from Russian oil and by doing so, uh, you know, produce other alternative means of generating power via renewable energy, but not only um, accessing that you know, not not only being able to access that renewable energy in times of surplus, but also being able to access that renewable energy in, in times when you do not have that uh, access coming in, and that will only be allowed uh, via energy storage. So I think those are the those are the, the key routes that are going to be um, are are building out in a very strong way. And then I've also seen within the ESG framework, I've seen a number of uh, you know, analysts within the ESG space now not just look at a company in isolation in terms of, okay, if it belongs to, uh, you know, the commodity sector, it's immediately a non-ESG um, friendly company, but actually um, addressing the fact that, okay, this company has now, uh, you know, progressed four steps uh, down the line in, in, in trying to be ESG friendly. So, I think a risk metric is trying to be formulated where companies are being assessed for what contribution they're making to be more ESG friendly, what initiatives they're taking to, uh, you know, try to reduce the emissions or try to reduce, try to improve their carbon footprint. And I think, um, 
you're seeing that within uh, allocations as well. It isn't it isn't as strict and as um, it's a lot more open and it's a lot more about looking at how companies are improving their carbon footprint as opposed to you know a blanket approval of okay if the sector is in that space they're just immediately knocked out from being ESG or non ESG. Okay, thanks for that. Um, I'd like to just finish off by talking a little bit about China, which I feel we can't um, really ignore in the in the podcast about um, geopolitics. Economist Gerard Lyons um, says that the crisis triggered by the war in Ukraine has seen China's renminbi viewed as a safe haven currency, which he called a potential game changer. Um, are we in the early stages of a decoupling from the dollar, William? Um, I don't think so, I have to say. I mean, frankly, when I think of China, I don't think of knock-on effects of the war in Ukraine. I, I very much think of the effects of the zero COVID lockdown policies that are going on right now, which I think is astoundingly underreported compared to its potential effects down the line. Um, I mean, if you look at the kind of the radar images of the cargo ships stuck in logjam off the port of Shanghai, that the, the numbers there dwarf what we've seen in previous lockdowns. And, and the thing that would, if, if anything were to keep me up at night, it would be the potential for an inflation spike to be bubbling in down the pipeline uh, in, in the future years to come. Uh, but again, it, it, I have to emphasize that it's incredibly difficult to know what is actually going on inside China. One cannot, one simply cannot trust any of the numbers. And there have been all sorts of whispers of discontent. You know, factions were operating in the shadows of the CCP, potentially preparing to challenge President Xi. There have been, um, you know, letters bubbling out here and there uh, suggesting that sort of thing. Um, again, what to do about it? It's very, very difficult. Obviously, direct China exposure is an order of magnitude bigger than Russia in global equities, but still actually nothing that would directly cause real problems, despite its magnitude in terms of GDP. Uh, again, the, the bigger concern is probably the indirect effects, not least of which potentially another inflation spike down the line. Um, and, and so I, I, I have to say things like the, you know, the renminbi response to things like what's going on in Ukraine, it comes second to uh, my concerns about what's going on with their attempts at uh, zero COVID lockdown. Okay, fair point. Um, Annika, what, um, what is what is wisdom tree expecting to come out of China? Well, you know, very, very you know, just like uh, William pointed out, it's it's um, it's a situation of I think we're seeing the worst of. Uh, you know, piece of economic data coming out from China at this point in time, and they're very closely tied to the lockdown. Um, but it's very important to keep in mind that China's zero COVID policy is what they view as their big, single biggest um, strong point. And the reason for that is they were the first economy to actually bounce back from COVID because of their zero COVID policy. So it's very different for China to move away from that zero COVID policy um, because as far as the government is concerned, they attribute that as their biggest success. Now, obviously, there's a lot of short-term pain that we are witnessing due to these protracted lo lockdowns. Um, but it's important to keep in mind that China, alongside Japan, are the two only economies that, will, that are most likely to continue to stimulate the economy as opposed to the rest of the developed world, which is tightening and normalizing policy. So. You know, 2021 was a very difficult year for China. Um, it obviously all started off with the, you know, the tightening of um, uh, credit, 
which had a knock-on effect on the property sector. And at the same time, uh, you know, they were driving ahead with their, uh, you know, common prosperity initiative. Um, and, and alongside that, they also rained down on, on a large part of the technology sector. So it, 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 there was no surprise that China would, was, you know, one of the worst uh, performing uh, uh, stock markets in 2021. 2022 actually started on a much more pro- positive note until we had, uh, you know, the, the rising COVID cases and the lockdowns and obviously the subsequent uh, knock-on effects of higher energy prices, which would also impact um, such a big oil importer like China. But we believe that, you know, based on the most recent Politburo meeting that, that took place, um, you know, the last 11 of those meetings were all about tightening policy, uh, you know, tightening of indiscipline. Uh, financial leverage. This was the first meeting which had a very pro-growth agenda, which was very focused on stimulating the economy. Um, and I think even mid-March, just post the, uh, you know, the Ukraine, the Russian war on Ukraine, uh, you know, China had their ECB's draggy moment of we're going to do whatever it takes, uh, you know, to to bring back growth within the Chinese economy. Um, and it did see a bit of a bounce back in that phase. So I think we're seeing the worst of economic data. We're seeing, uh, you know, China go to its lowest level at this point. And I think in the second half, given the fact that we will see a bit more stimulus come in, uh, come into play, that should help the economy uh, rebound. It's something very similar to what we've seen in 2018. They cracked down on, on leverage, uh, you know, in a lot of indisciplined spending. And, you know, then they, they threw in the towel because they could see the the damage it was causing, and then the markets rebound in the subsequent two years. We, we believe we'll see a similar trend um, in the sec- play out in the second half of 2022. Um, and I just wanted to mention on the renminbi, obviously, we've you know that given the wide policy divergence we've seen between the U.S. and China, uh, the renminbi has depreciated considerably, and that's one of the reasons we haven't seen the People's Bank of China go outright and actually cut rates. So. The other reason why China is disappointing is the the, the stimulative acts are not as aggressive as seen in the previous cycles. And that's because China doesn't want an extremely weak renminbi. China wants stability in the currency. And that is why we believe a lot of the stimulus is now going to be on the infrastructure side um, and a lot on the fiscal side, which was, again, very outlined in the Politburo meeting. But I'll end on that note unless you have any further questions. (laughs) <laughs> sure, thanks for that. Did you want to add anything to that, William? Yeah, I was just going to uh, chip in and say, I suppose we can't um, talk about geopolitics in China without mentioning Taiwan, um, because for a while, the, the big concern, the kind of the, the greatest fear was that there would be a synchronized invasion of Russia, by, of Ukraine by Russia and Taiwan by China. Now, that, that window is still technically open, but I think it's you know, vastly dis- diminished. So I suppose or, you know, if you're looking to reasons to be cheerful, that that's a risk off the table. Um, and you know, I won't speculate on on whether that uh, you know risk of China invest, invading Taiwan has um, changed significantly, but there there has been an awful lot written about it. Um, and, and although it's very very interesting to say, again, I refer back to um, that website Metaculus, that kind of aggregated uh, prediction uh, web, website, which is currently at about twelve percent chance of a of China invading Taiwan before 2025, which probably feels about right to me. But uh, yes, reason to be cheerful. That doesn't seem like it's a, a you know, synchronized invasion is on the cards anymore. 
And that seems a very good point to um to end, I think. Thank you very, very much, uh, both of you, for joining us today. Um, it was a really good talk. Um, surely lots more to come, lots more to discuss in the future. Thanks very much, and thank you for listening. Please tune again next time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.